Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Jonathan Gruber will join us to discuss healthcare reform. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, healthcare reform is one of the most contested issues of our political moment and perhaps one of the most misunderstood. Joining us today to discuss the uh, burgeoning debate about healthcare reform is Professor Jonathan Gruber. Professor Gruber is a professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and director of the healthcare program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Author of numerous works on the subject, uh, he has penned the uh, latest uh, release, Healthcare Reform What It Is, Why It's Necessary, and How It Works with H.B. Newquist and illustrated by Nathan Schreiber. Professor Gruber, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, happy to be here. Certainly an interesting book, a unique book, I think, in which you talk about healthcare reform. It's an illustrated book. Why an illustrated book? Yeah, so um, the publisher, I'd for a long time wanted to do a book which could really explain this very complicated legislation, but I want to do so in a way that didn't put people to sleep and would actually get read. And the uh, publisher approached me and suggested this idea, and I thought that was sort of a weird idea, and I wasn't really interested. But they explained to me what a great educational medium it was. They said, look, when you're on an airplane and they want to make sure you know what to do in case of a crash, they hand you a comic, right? It's a great way to learn. And uh, he's right. It's a great way to express very complicated concepts because the combination of pictures and words makes it flow better and really uh, uh, helps, helps get the story across. Uh, almost certainly uh, much easier reading than going through the actual uh, Affordable Care Act. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, you were one of the architects of form in Massachusetts and, of course, an advisor to Obama on, on this legislation. I'm wondering, then, if you can distill what actually is going on here in health care reform. Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, really, the, the goal of the book is really threefold. I mean, one is to explain what the problems are in our health care system. We have these twin problems of a high and rising number of uninsured and high and unsustainably rising health care costs. I represent them as a two-headed alligator in the book. And I explain how we dealt with the first head of that alligator, the uninsured in Massachusetts, through a very successful reform we put in place in 2006, the principle of which was basically, look, if you like what you have, we'll leave you alone. But let's fix the system for those who it, for, for those for whom it's not working. Most of your listeners will have employer-sponsored insurance or government insurance, and they'll have some complaints, but by and large it works pretty well for them. What they may not realize is for the millions of Americans who don't have access to employer-sponsored insurance, the system is a nightmare. Uh, You can have bought insurance for 10 years and be dropped the minute you get sick or have your prices tripled on a moment's notice. Uh, Now, you might ask yourself, how is that insurance? And the answer is it's not. We effectively have broken insurance markets unless you get insurance from your employer or from the government. So in Massachusetts, we fixed this. Uh, And we fixed it not necessarily by relying on the government, but by fixing broken private insurance markets. We fixed it by saying to insurers, look, you can no longer discriminate against the sick. And by saying to individuals, to make it possible for insurers to offer insurance at fair prices, we're going to mandate that everyone buy. 
so people can't just free ride and jump into the system when they're sick and stay out when they're healthy. That system we put together, and then finally the third thing we added was, look, to make it affordable, we're going to add extensive subsidies to make sure low-income people can afford health insurance. That so-called three-legged stool, reforming insurance markets, the mandate, and subsidies, that three-legged stool really became the basis for our plan, which has succeeded greatly. We've covered about two-thirds of our uninsured, uh, and it's the basis for the national plan. The national plan is really based on the Massachusetts plan. And the book, so the book explains what we did in Massachusetts, explains how it's the basis of the national plan, but then goes on and talks about other elements of the national plan that weren't present in Massachusetts, most importantly, efforts to control health care costs. What are some of the impediments for controlling the costs? Well, really, there's two impediments for controlling costs. The first is scientific, which is what we really need to do is we need to bend the cost curve. We need to slow the rate of cost growth in health care. And we don't quite know how to do that. There's a lot of good ideas out there, but none that really have evidence to support them that they can fundamentally slow the growth rate of health care costs. So one barrier is scientific. The other barrier is political, which is even if we did know how to control health care costs, the politicians wouldn't let us do it. You saw that with the debate over this bill where anything which is introduced which might have a chance of controlling costs was booed down as death panels or socialized medicine. Um, so basically, what do you do in that situation as a good scientist? If you've got something that's scientifically uncertain and politically difficult, you try a bunch of different things that might work and hope that together they can move, us, move the debate forward. So that's what this bill does. It takes sort of what I call a spaghetti approach to cost control. It throws a bunch of stuff against the wall and sees what sticks. And it essentially takes all the best ideas that health experts have on how to control costs, ranging from free market ideas like setting up competitive health insurance exchanges to uh, government-sponsored research into comparative effectiveness to changes in the way we reimburse uh, doctors in delivering their care none of which are guaranteed or that we have evidence will definitely control health care costs, but put together, all of which represent a major step forward in our efforts to control health care spending. Is health care costs in America, or at least the argument is that it's much higher than in the rest of the world, and there's really no reason for this other than just the fact that you can charge these amounts? Well, I mean, it is absolutely true. We spend a lot more than relative to our income than other countries. Uh, we spend about 18% of our GDP, a comparable country, and say Europe spends maybe 12%. Um, so we're spending a lot more uh, than a comparable country. Uh, but once again, we're not 100% sure why. This is what I mean by the uncertain science. Part of it is prices. We pay our doctors a lot more. We pay a lot more for our drugs. But that's not all of it. Part of it is utilization. And by that, I don't mean numbers of doctor's visits. In fact, many European countries, they see the doctor much more than we do. In Japan, they take about twice as many prescription drugs as we do. The bigger difference is once our healthcare system gets a hold of you, it doesn't let go. It's the number of tests, the number of procedures, the intensity with which we're treated. And that's something which is hard to know how to tackle, how to tackle both in a scientifically and politically feasible way. Part of that may be driven just by the overly litigious nature of barrier to malpractice suits. The, the role of malpractice is, is one which was discussed extensively during the debate. Unfortunately, it's one which is incredibly uncertain. I mean, the malpractice system itself amounts to only 0.3% of healthcare spending. The bigger issue is how much defensive medicine is there, how much of the extra care that we get is because people are afraid of getting sued, and we really have no idea. So once again, what this bill does is say, look, we don't know what to do, so let's experiment. And it offers states the ability to run pilots of different ways to organize their malpractice systems to try to get malpractice costs down. So what about the, uh, this idea that death panels will exist that will decide on end-of-life care? You know, the audience for this book is really anyone who has an open mind about the law. Someone who's decided President Obama was born in Kenya and anything he touches is evil shouldn't read this book. It's not, you know, if you've made up your mind, don't read the book. 
The book is really for people who are really curious. And they hear things like death panels. They say, that, that sounds sort of weird. Why would anybody be stupid enough to put death panels in a law? And they realize there are no death panels. Uh, the death panel example is, is an illustrative one. Uh, early on in the legislation, there was an effort to try to put in uh, facilities that could help patients consult with their doctors about end-of-life care. Medicare, our largest single health care program in the U.S., spends about a third of its money in the last six months of life. So this is an important issue. However, the minute this idea was floated, it was immediately labeled as death panels and removed from the bill. So that illustrates two things about health care reform. First of all, it illustrates the fact that anytime you try to take health care cost control seriously, you're going to get politicized. Second of all, it illustrates the misinformation that's out there in that there never were death panels, and even the thing you might label death panels still isn't even in the law, and yet that, that notion persists. So really that's why I'm motivated to write this book, which is there's so much misinformation out there, and that it's so important that we understand what actually is in this bill and how it actually works. This is not, for example, another big myth I dispel here is the notion this is socialized medicine. In fact, this is not socialized medicine. In fact, people may be surprised to hear that this bill actually massively expands private health insurance in the U.S. It massively expands health insurance choice through private health insurance exchanges. So I think that this is not, um, you know, th there's a lot of misunderstanding about what this law does. What is the uh, typical complaint then from the insurance industry? Is it's well, no, the insurance industry is actually pretty, pretty, pretty much supported. I mean, basically, it, let's see, the insurance industries have given up. And let's be clear, the insurance industries have given up in this law the way they've made money for the last 60 years, which is to discriminate against the sick. If you're an insurer, the money was to be made not in trying to figure out how to make people healthy, but in figuring out how to avoid sick people. They can't do that anymore. Now they have to charge the sick and the health at the same price. So they gave up a lot in this bill. In return, they got the individual mandate, which or we as a nation got it, which guarantees a large share of new insurance business. But they also got hit on their reimbursements for Medicare. Private insurers in the U.S. were being massively overpaid to insure our nation's seniors, and those payments go down as part of financing for the bill. So there's benefits and costs for insurers in this bill. They were overall cautiously supportive. I think they got a little bit vilified during the debate, and they probably didn't like that. But overall, the insurance industry, given the insurance industry was a major, played a major role in killing the Clinton reform effort, it was pretty supportive this time around. In regards to the individual mandate, one of the complaints is that this is going to force uh, Americans to buy insurance that they really don't want or can't afford. Yes. I mean, once again, two points of the individual mandate. First, once again, we can't emphasize enough how critical it is to the whole nature of this enterprise. As I illustrate in the book, I say the mandate sort of the spinach you have to eat to get the dessert that is fairly priced insurance coverage. We all want insurance coverage that's fair. We all want to make sure if we lose our jobs, we're not going to end up bankrupt. Uh, but to get that, you need the individual mandate. Because if you try to tell insurance companies they can't charge the sick more than the healthy, they'll just charge everyone like they're sick unless you make sure there's broad participation in insurance markets. So it's a necessary aspect of reform. However, it's also necessary that the mandate be humane. And for that reason, the bill includes massive subsidies to make health insurance affordable for low-income families and includes a provision that no one is mandated to have insurance coverage if it costs more than 8% of their income. Just listening to Professor Jonathan Gruber discussing the health care reform. This is the Grox Science Show. Stay tuned. If I can reach the stars Pull one down for you Shining on the heart So you could see the truth Then this love I have inside Is everything it seems 
Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Join us today to discuss the uh, burgeoning debate about healthcare reform is Professor Jonathan Gruber. Much debate during the, the whole proceedings of, of instituting the act about the public option. Why was this really not implemented? You know, the public option is an interesting idea. So the brainchild of another academic, uh, Jacob Hacker at Yale, and I like it a lot. But at the end of the day, it wasn't really a very big deal. I mean, at the end of the day, what you have is a very non-competitive insurance market for individuals who don't have employer-sponsored insurance. The most important thing we could do is make that market competitive, set up exchanges where people can choose across options. It would be nice, I think, if one of those options was government insurance, but it's not really central to the plan. And, in fact, states still have the ability to do that. In fact, the state of Connecticut is, is, is hoping to introduce a public option as part of its exchange. So I think we'll be able to see how that plays out at the state level. So for, for those people who are insured, should they really be concerned about the Affordable Care Act, or what will it do for them? I think for people who have employer-sponsored insurance they like, it won't do really anything. Uh, it really is, it won't do anything, it won't cost them anything, it's just kind of, we, I mean, the politician said from the start, the, a major principle of this law is leave people alone if they like what they have. Now, but the problem is, this law can't guarantee you'll keep what you have, because employer-sponsored insurance is going away. Okay, I like to think of employer-sponsored insurance as sort of a crumbling building. It's a building that served as well for 60 years, but it's getting kind of old. It's starting to crumble. About 10% of people have lost their employer-sponsored insurance in the last 10 years. What the Affordable Care Act does is set up nets to catch us if we happen to fall out of that crumbling building. And so if you're insured, if you're a tenured professor like me and you can't lose your job, then the Affordable Care Act does nothing for you. But if you are someone who might lose your job or might end up facing, jumping out of that crumbling building, you want to make sure that there's someplace for you to go, and that's what the Affordable Care Act does. And then finally, you know, just to amend what I said a moment ago, in the near term, it doesn't do much, but in the long term, this might benefit everyone if we can get health care costs under control. So in the near term, there's not really much effect on those who are happy with their insurance. But in the long term, if this can really be the start down a path of cost control, then that's the most important thing we can do for our country. How, how does the Affordable Care Act affect the federal deficit? Uh, the Affordable Care Act actually lowers the deficit. One nice feature that I emphasize in the book is we have actually objective evidence on the effect of the Affordable Care Act that comes from a nonpartisan government agency called the Congressional Budget Office. They project the Affordable Care Act actually lowers the deficit by more than $100 billion in the first decade and more than a trillion dollars in the second decade. And that's a refreshing change from the way government policies work the past 15 years or so, where everything we've done has just been growing the deficit further and further. Do you find it just somewhat disconcerting that any effort to institute any kind of change always gets politicized? You know, um, I uh, was very frustrated by it, but I can't help but be encouraged by the fact this law got passed. I mean, it's been 100 years of effort, about every 17 years on average, to move to universal coverage, and we did it. And I think uh, for those of us who are really frustrated the American political process, it's refreshing to see something of this import actually get passed and get through. Now, it remains frustrating to me that those who lost, those opposed to this bill, won't just give up and move on. Uh, that's frustrating. But nonetheless, uh, I think it's exciting something this import could actually get done in our democracy. What of the many challenges to the, the act that are uh, currently winding their way through the courts? What uh, do you think will occur, or uh, what's the future of the Affordable Care Act? I mean, I wish I could tell you. I think on legal grounds, I'm not a constitutional scholar. The case seems pretty clear to me. And, in fact, the majority of lower courts have ruled on this case have found the mandate constitutional. But we don't know what the Supreme Court's going to stay. I think if they, uh, you know, we don't know what role politics is going to end up playing in that process. So I, I honestly can't predict it. I'd like to think the mandate will be found constitutional. 
I think based on all the prior decisions justices have made in similar cases, it should win by at least a six to three vote, but you know, who knows? I would just urge the, uh, you know, urge people who have an open mind about this, uh, about this issue to take a look at the book and uh, make up their own mind and don't let pundits who have vested public interests uh, sway them one way or another. Well, certainly an interesting book. It's uh, Healthcare Reform, What It Is, Why It's Necessary, How It Works. And uh, Professor Gruber, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.